Thank you for downloading our podcast. We are tempted to pursue a more tangible religion. We can fall into a trap and think we need more than Christ. But Hebrews assures us that Christ is all we need. Join us as we study Hebrews to learn more about our great Melchizedekian priest who presides in heaven and calls us on this wonderful earthly pilgrimage. Well, this catalog in Hebrews 11 is being wrapped up. It's a summary of what we sometimes call the heroes of the faith, or some refer to as the heroes of the faith. Many times when we elevate these individuals, because again, looking at this list, it's remarkable to me that the apostle or uh, the writer of Hebrews doesn't give us necessarily always a cream of the crop in the Old Testament. But he's instructing us in a very strange way. And I want to say he's instructing us in a strange way because he's teaching us about the marathon of the Christian life. And when I say that, it's it's important to note the majority of the individuals referred to are those who have died before Christ walked this earth. And so how can I say that this is a catalog of saints or a historic precedent of God working in the lives of his people to instruct the New Testament church as to how we live. You would think that this is Old Testament. This, this is old, ancient history. But the author of Hebrews, remember, is writing this letter to a church that wants to go back to the tangible religion. It's not content with Christ. doesn't see the beauty of Christ. It wants the tangible religion. So how can this possibly be relevant for us today? Well, I want to divide this up into basically, as this is, ba- this is a, uh, you, I would say, the post-conquest sort of list. So after they go into the land, what happens with Israel in the land and sort of that history? So we start with the mighty soldiers and those who have conquered We look secondly at the mighty strugglers, that they're not necessarily soldiers, but they're definitely individuals uh, who struggled uh, to keep their orientation and their goal uh, of heaven in mind. And lastly, there's just a mighty, wonderful summary, uh, verses 39 and 40. Let's begin with the mighty soldiers in verses 32 through 34. Notice how verse 32 begins. What more shall I say? In other words, the author of Hebrews, and most likely this was a a sermon preached. Uh, We don't necessarily know who did it, uh, but the way it's written, I I would argue that this is not the first draft we have in our canon. It's a very well-written piece, not that he needs my affirmation, but for instance, Isaiah, you sometimes get a sense that maybe Isaiah wrote portions of it when he was tired after a long day. You don't get that sense with this letter. It's very deliberate. And so when he says, what more shall I say? The implication at verse 32 is the author of Hebrews has said, I've said enough. I've already made the case as to how God has worked. You should have already learned your lesson about the Christian life and walking by faith. But he says, but nevertheless, I'm going to go on. And I can give even more character descriptions. And I find these character descriptions somewhat significant. Gideon, 
He skips right to Gideon in the book of Judges. Why not Ehud? Man of action. A man who goes and takes care of business on his own. No fear, no fright. Goes and he, he takes care of business. Gideon. Well, this is a guy that as we consider his uh, judge and, and how he judged Israel, it's less than impressive. It's recorded in Judges 6 through 8. It's a man where he's very frustrated with what he sees around him. How Israel's not in a dominant position. Cries out to God, desires relief from the hand of Midian or the people of Midian. And so when the Lord comes to him and says, you're the man of action, you're the man I'm choosing. You think that Gideon would be great. You're giving me permission to carry out my fundamental desire and to throw off these foreign oppressors. Well, we find that he deals with, uh, you know, the, the altar of Baal quietly at night. He doesn't do it in the middle of the day, so he does it so that nobody knows who really does it. Not exactly an act of, of heroics. Uh, it's something where it's somewhat cowardly. We might say, well, that's just really uncharitable because if we were in that situation, we probably wouldn't have walked up to the altar of Baal and, and done it in the middle of the day either. So we, we can understand. But then the Lord comes and wants him to go to war. And so Gideon says, well, I'll tell you what, I'll go to war if you do this. So now we're, we're getting very close to testing God. And I think so often we look at Gideon's fleece and, and, and we see this as something normative for the Christian life rather than testing and pushing the long-suffering, steadfast nature of God, which is kind of what the text is implying to us. So Gideon says to the Lord, I'll tell you what, I'll put a fleece down, and I want the fleece to be wet, but all the ground around it to be dry. Gets up the next day, happens exactly like he requests, okay? God wants me to do this, you would think. But he's not satisfied with that. Because maybe the fleece is so absorbent, it just sucked up all the dew of the ground, right? So he goes back again. He says, this is what I want. I want the fleece to be dry and the ground to be wet, which is quite impossible, actually. I mean, that's something that's only divine uh, that this would take place. You put a fleece or any type of cloth out overnight and let the dew um, come during, during the, or in the morning, you're going to have a wet cloth. And so this is something that only a divine being can do. It is truly a miracle. And so again, the, the Lord fulfills a sign. Gideon then goes to war, but now the Lord tests Gideon. As Gideon goes to war, his first test, when he has, you know, the army of Israel come out, a great army, his first test to the army is, who's ever scared to die and go to war, please go home. 22,000 people leave. I mean, can you imagine that? 22,000 people walk away. And then the Lord says, oh, but your army's not small enough yet. You want to say, Lord, I just lost 22,000 men. The Lord's saying, no, Gideon, you need to understand this is my victory, not your victory. So he goes down to the, goes down to the river, and he's going to have the men drink. And the ones that lap like a dog, uh, not necessarily an intelligent picture, if you really let that resonate as to what this looks like, the Lord's saying, the ones that lap like a dog, you're going to take these 300 into battle, and the other ones are dismissed, and, and they can go home. And so this is what Gideon's left with. And by the grace of God, as he goes to war, he wins the battle with the Lord's plan. And so again, the, the point that Hebrews is driving home is it's not so much Gideon. 
Gideon, as he tests the Lord, the Lord responds with two other tests for Gideon, doesn't he? And we find that by the grace of God, Gideon is sustained. Going on, he mentions Barak. This is Judges 4 to 5. So you can notice that these judges are not chronological as, as he lists them. So this is a judge that would be before Gideon. Uh, this is a man, again, that when you think about him, he is not necessarily someone we would think of as being necessarily decisive. Uh, the, the irony of this mighty soldier of war is that he's not going to go into war until basically Deborah holds his hand. Uh, that's sort of the presentation. It's intended to sort of be tongue-in-cheek as you read the story. Here's a mighty soldier, but he's saying, Mommy, Mommy, please help me. You know, that's sort of the, the presentation there. And you say, this is a judge? This is a guy that God's going to claim his victory? But basically, he is told, go to war. The Lord's delivering Sisera into your hand. Uh, now, again, he doesn't actually get the king. Uh, that happens with Jael putting this tent post uh, through his head, if you remember that story. Uh, but nevertheless, uh, Barak is the one who does capture the army by the grace of God. So again, we're reminded, this isn't necessarily a man of strength, a man of power, uh, but it is purely 100% by the Lord's action that his victory is won. Samson, another judge. When you look at Samson, uh, sort of the, the last judge of action, Samuel sort of becomes a transition from judge uh, to prophet. Uh, but you have Samson then truly being the, the judge that Israel deserves. Because if, if you remember the book of Judges, there is a repeated theme throughout the book. And they again did what was right in their own eyes. So you have Israel no longer inquiring of the wisdom of God. Israel is doing what is right in their own eyes. Who's Samson? The judge who looks upon all the foreign women, all the things he is not to pursue, he pursues. In fact, the only thing he does right in terms of his vow as a Nazarite is he does not cut his hair. Well, when he's asked by Delilah, what's the source of your strength? What does he say? Part of it is the Lord, but, but he doesn't really see that it's the Lord. It's his hair. You touch my hair, I will be a weak man. Well, we find that he is deceived, his hair is cut, and at the end of his life, he is taken to the temple of Dagon. And he is there celebrated as basically an offering to the God, showing that Dagon is greater than the God of Israel. Now, the irony is, as Samson prays, he says, Lord, let me avenge my eyes. Because if you're familiar with the story, he's uh, tied up to the two pillars in the temple, in the center of the, of the temple, and his eyes have been gouged out. And so the irony is that when Samson's eyes are gouged out, he finally sees the source of his strength clearly, that he sees the Lord. And he cries out, and then there is a great victory. So again, it's that reminder, a man who trusts in his own flesh and strength is a man who has to come to grips with the reality God's strength is manifested through weakness. And so... We think also of another judge, Japheth. He is before Samson. We think of this judge in Judges 11 through 12. There's two things that he's known for. Uh, he's a judge who fights against the Ammonites. So we know that he's a mighty one, a, a mighty judge. 
But we also know of the tragic vow, where he makes a vow that the first thing that runs out of the door I will sacrifice unto the Lord. And it is his daughter who runs through the door. Jephthah, being a man of pride, rather than trying to figure out whether his oath was rash, whether his oath was unethical, because there is a provision. You know, people say, well, this is why the God of Israel is so cruel and so mean. Is he? Because Jephthah, as a judge, should know Leviticus 5. Leviticus 5 gives a procedure when one makes a hasty or irrational oath. That one can offer an animal and, and, and sort of an atonement and a covering of that very oath. He doesn't do that. Micah 6 explicitly says we're not to embrace child sacrifice. But what does Jephthah do? He sacrifices his daughter. And so again, we notice this man does a mighty thing. He accomplishes a mighty war. But he's also known for the tragedy of not fully understanding the will of God and the hastiness of his oath. And so we recall that. Certainly a man who shows his weakness. Well, we have then these two men that the author of Hebrews wants us to contemplate. David and Samuel. This is really putting us on a high note. Certainly we know David had his moral failing. We, we, we can't deny that. That's true. That's the reality of it. But what is David's reputation? By and large, he is the picture of what Israel wanted as a messianic king. One who would slay his ten thousands. The one who stood up against Goliath. The one who was bold enough to call the mighty giant a dog. And he prevailed. And so we think of David. Great, this is a man who certainly does this. But why does David do this? Writing the Psalms. Hearing the struggles of David. His orientation is not in David. Certainly Psalm 51, a wonderful psalm of confession. We see the heart of David crying out to God for mercy. And so we see him as a man who, again, not bold in his own strength, not boasting of being the, the type or model of the Messiah. And it is through his line, as the Lord binds himself to bring about the Messianic line. Samuel. One, as I mentioned, moves from the tra transition of a judge to prophet. Samuel sort of has an overlap in that orientation. A man who, too, brought the word of God continually to the Lord's people. And so these, these events that are summarized here and, and communicated to us, that we have that these are men who have done great things. They've escaped the power of fire, the edge of the sword, we're made strong out of weakness, right? So that's sort of the theme we're picking up here. Became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. So these can be summaries of many examples. Uh, we can think of Daniel and his, or Daniel's friends uh, with the fire. We can think of sword being a threat to many of the Israelites and the righteous and how the Lord protected uh, we see them mighty in war. We've already talked about David. We've already talked about these judges who have prevailed with hope against hope. Uh, we think of the foreign armies to flight. Certainly a, a theme you could see with Gideon. Uh, you can see it with Samson and how he was pursued and he made people run away. And so the, the invitation, I, I don't think, is so much a specific example 
As the author of Hebrews is inviting us to think, let's think of all the examples of hope against hope and how the Lord prevailed. No hope. They're done. And the Lord prevailed. That's what the author of Hebrews wants us to understand. Not just in the New Testament. Not just in a post-resurrected Christ world, if you will. But even under a promise, the Lord manifests his strength. But going on then, we consider then these mighty strugglers. We look at uh, verses 35 through 38. We think about these mighty strugglers because we hear of these women who receive back their dead. Now, he's already mentioned Abraham and, and Sarai, where he's talked about them receiving uh, back Isaac, a sort of a type of resurrection, you know, sort of models it that he expects him to die. And there is another in the place of him. We think of their bodies as good as dead, so there's death, and then Isaac comes showing life. But this receiving back their dead seems to be two examples that, that we know of in Scripture. We think of Elijah and Elijah. Uh, as we think first of Elijah, where he's one who's fleeing from Ahaz, Elijah is told to go to the widow of Zarephath and to hide out there. Uh, her son dies. And Elijah prays to God, and he performs a miracle, and there's a resurrection. And then you have Elisha, 2 Kings 4, as he travels. Uh, he hides out in a widow's house, or not a widow's house, but in a couple's house that are uh, pagan, they're Gentiles. Uh, they are, they're barren. Elijah predicts that they're going to have a child. They have a child. And then there's a tragedy where the child dies. Uh, the mother sends for Elijah. Elisha comes and he resurrects the child. Again, showing the very power of God where there is no hope at all. In fact, Christ refers to this in Luke chapter 4, where he recalls to Israel that the only widows that received the care of God were the Gentile widows in the days of Elijah and Elisha. And so it's recalling for Israel the purpose, and here's a reminder that, that the Gentiles are, are not excluded from this blessing. But he goes on, and he's telling us now situations that are probably going outside of the Old Testament uh, canon. Um, some may be in the context between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Uh, some are just a history that the Jewish people would know. And so he speaks of torture, uh, where basically these are individuals who endure suffering for the sake of Christ. Uh, when we think about uh, this suffering, this mocking, this flogging, could be referring to Christ Jesus himself being flogged. We can think of the Apostle Paul experiencing this. Uh, we can think of those in the time of the Maccabean revolt. Uh, some of these things were happening. And so this is not necessarily just, just particular examples. Once again, we think of imprisonment. We can think of John the Baptist would be an example of this, uh, who endured this. Uh, we find this language of sawn in two. Now, this is one that's most likely recounting for us the tradition of Isaiah's death. Uh, this is a tradition that's been passed down to us, that basically Isaiah the prophet uh, delivered a, a message about the destruction of the temple. Manasseh didn't like uh, this, this prophecy at all, so, he, so the rational thing happens. 
rather than changing one's ways, you kill the messenger. Because if you kill the messenger, well, then the message isn't going to come true, right? And so the, the tradition is that Isaiah goes, he hides in the cedar tree. Uh, there are those that then take the saw, they cut the tree in half, and Isaiah is sawn in half with the tree. And so a rather a terrible death, uh, to say the least. And so the reality is the temple still destroyed, so we see the, the truth and the promise that the word of God goes beyond the messenger and is not grounded in the prophet, but in the giver of the word. We find then the reminder they, they escaped um, these, the sword in verse 37, that reminder that, that they ran away, some were killed, some didn't get killed, uh, as we look at this in the context. But then we go on. We notice the skins of sheep and goats. So this is sort of recalling for us the garb of John the Baptist. We think of the garb of Elijah and Elijah. We've already talked about uh, the miracle they've done in, in resurrecting uh, this, these uh, sons, uh, one for a widow, one for a barren couple. And as these miracles have happened, they put on these clothes. Now, we, we wonder, well, why is this called to our attention? Well, it tells us, destitute, afflicted, mistreated. The point is, this is how the people of Israel treated the word of God. This is how the Lord's people viewed the word of God. They didn't value the messenger. They didn't value the word. What does Christ say in his mission? When he comes to this earth, he says, Oh, Jerusalem, the city that kills its prophets. And so the recollection here is that these men were willing to spend a life of suffering, a life of being mistreated and affliction. Why? Well, we don't know that yet at this point. But we find that it goes on. He says, in fact, the world's not worthy. So now it's beginning to give us the implication of this. The implication of this is that uh, what man didn't value, God valued. And so the world doesn't see the value of what's going on in their lives, but the Lord sees it. This is why they're willing to go to mountains. They're willing to live in dens and caves. We see this with David. We see this with the prophets. These examples are throughout the Old Testament. And so right here we say, okay, so there's these individuals who, who lived out the faith. They, they suffered for the Lord. But then what's the point of all this? And this is where verses 39 and 40 become so important. But we find in verse 39, they were commended through their faith, even though they did not receive what was promised. In other words, these individuals had such a conviction of the promises of God. And so this is looking in history, thinking about the reality of this, thinking about how we see the fruits of this working out, right? And so as we're seeing this, they're, they're living in the confidence of who the Lord is. Now, why do we say the fruits of the faith? Because verse 39 is recalling for us the first three verses of Hebrews 11. And so the first three verses is a recollection of God who creates the visible from the invisible. You don't see God. You don't see the creation. And all of a sudden, by the word of God, the creation comes into existence. And so here, the author of Hebrews is saying, do you understand now how the word of God functions? 
When the word of God goes out, you see the fruits, the power of that word manifested in these individuals who have struggled through this age. What man did not value, God valued. What man did not crown as righteous and pure, God crowns as righteous and pure. And we might say, why are they living such a life? Why would the Lord be such a tease? Why does God string this carrot in front of their eyes and not give them the substance of what they suffer for? It almost sounds cruel, doesn't it? When you really put it into context, this is why we need verse 40. Because the author of Hebrews knows who we are. He surveyed the wilderness generation. We want to test God. And so the author of Hebrews says, provided something better for us. Well, what's that something better? The Melchizedekian priesthood that he has laid out in chapter 9. The very climatic reality of who Christ is. He's saying, don't minimize the significance of Christ interceding for you in the heavenly places. Do not minimize the significance of the resurrected priest presiding in the holy of holies in heaven itself. But he tells us something else. So we can say, okay, so they're just a moral lesson. Another hero says, not exactly. That's not what I mean. He says that they should not be made complete. Basically brought to completion is another way of rendering this. But again, I'm not picking on the Bible translators. It's hard. My, my Bible translation would probably be so thick you couldn't carry it. Uh, but the intention here is that they would be brought to completion the fullness of what they were supposed to be is, is sort of getting at, at the point of this. We think of perfection as just moral perfection, right? Like we don't sin anymore, we're in a resurrected body. No, the, the, the meaning behind this word, it's far deeper. It's basically entering into the holy city of God, being in the presence of Christ, being in the heavenly sanctuary, the heavenly banquet table. In other words, all those gospel promises coming to fruition. And he's saying, they're going to arrive there as we are going to arrive there. You think about that reality. And I always go back to the saints under the altar in my mind with language like this. And what it must have been like, the saints and under Rome, who were also sawn into, and, and some of these things may be referring to their deaths, and how they long to wait for the perfection and completion as they cry out to God under the altar. How long? But you think of Elijah. You think about these individuals and their suffering. You think about Isaiah. You think about Abraham. You think about Adam being in heaven all this time, conscious that there's a progression, probably not the same way we have that consciousness, but asking, how long, O oh Lord? And here the author of Hebrews, when we feel as if we are not significant to him because they had the tabernacle, they had the temple, they had the tangible things. The author of Hebrews is saying, don't, don't think of yourselves as getting the short end of the stick here. They've been waiting for perfection as they're waiting for their glorified body in the fullness of everything. We're closer to that day at this time in history. Now, we don't know when Christ is coming again, but the reality is we're closer than they were. 
And the author of Hebrews intends for that to encourage us. But there's something else I take from this that, that we can't minimize. Because he starts at a very high point in covenant history, doesn't he? He doesn't start at, at Adam. Right? You think of Adam, the exit of Eden, how, how much relief that must be to hear God say, I'm not going to give you hell. That's what you deserve, but I'm not going to give it to you. You have Abraham. And you think of, of Abraham as a man where so many people appeal to his life for the health and wealth gospel. If you're faithful, you'll receive you know, hundreds and hundredfold of, of whatever you give, and all these wonderful things will come to you. You say, well, what about Isaiah? What about David when he's in the cave hiding from Saul? What about those times and those times of suffering? That what we pick up from this list is in our own perception that we have to wrestle with it. Abraham felt the unrest of this age. Because even though as Abraham saw a, a type of a resurrection, not only in the birth of Isaac, but in receiving Isaac back and, and not having to sacrifice him. There, there's a picture of the resurrection, the gospel going on right there. Yet he doesn't receive the fullness of it. There's still an unrest and an in, in, in incompletion in this world. The saints that he catalogs who suffer, who certainly feel the incompletion and the lack of shalom or peace in this world as they're literally facing death and exile, facing times of genocide when we recounted the exodus with Moses. I mean, there, there's some real turmoil going on in their lives. That no matter where an individual is, Abraham, sort of the top of his game in covenant history, Yes, he sojourns, he leaves his family, but still, it seems in terms of, of, of the saints in this list, may have had one of the easier lives. But yet, there is still unrest. And I'm not trying to minimize what he has done, but there's still unrest. And the author of Hebrews is saying to the church, listen, the nature of this age is not a problem with the Lord's redemptive purpose. So often that's what we want to say. Lord, if you do this, Lord, if you've done this, Lord, if you work this way, then I wouldn't struggle. The author of Hebrews is saying, think through the catalog of saints. High point, low point, they all struggled to find their contentment in this age. It's not because the plan of God has failed. It's because this world is broken. It's not brought to completion, verse 40. And the author of Hebrews is saying, that's what we're conscious of. We want the completion. We want the glory. And that's, that's not a bad thing. Honestly, that's not a bad thing. The author of Hebrews is saying, that's a good thing. As long as we do it in the right way. That we're waiting upon the Lord. We're confident that his promises are not null and void. And that the Lord will bring us into that place of rest. Israel was provisional we find that Israel wasn't even in the land the whole time. We find many times the author of Hebrews recalling for us, saints were there without the tabernacle. And yet we find they still worship the same God. When they're with the tabernacle or without the tabernacle, outside the land, in the land, there is unrest. The author of Hebrews, in a very brilliant way, is not asking us to pick apart the lives of these saints. 
but to ask ourselves what is fundamentally being taught there. That in the midst of weakness, in the midst of brokenness, his saints still saw their God. So the author of Hebrews is reminding us and exhorting us, see your God. See the goodness of who your God is. No matter what the circumstances are, no matter what your perceptions may be, see the goodness of your God and understand that your longing for something more is not because of his failing. It's because of the brokenness of this world, the fallenness of this age, the common curse that extends to all of us, the assurance is that the Lord has not forgotten his promise to move this beyond just perfection, but bringing it to completion, to what God intends for us to be, those who dwell in his presence for, in glory forever, singing praises with the angelic hosts in the heavenly temple, dining with him at the heavenly banquet table. And the author of Hebrews is reminding us, this is what you taste in the spirit by faith. Don't minimize what the Lord is doing. Again, it goes back to what do we do? We minimize what the Lord is doing. We don't value it. The author of Hebrews says, yes, these people discarded. They were those valued by the living God. So we can ask her a question then. How is this relevant for us today? Well, it's simply relevant because we feel the angst of this age. We feel the unrest. But the assurance is that as these Old Testament saints, whether in high places or low places, all looked in the confidence that the Lord will bring his promises to completion. Let us continue on our sojourn in that confidence. In the midst of discouragement, trusting that God is still there, even as we may be tempted to think he's not. In the midst of award or in the midst of blessing, not to think in terms of, look at what I have done, look at what my hands have done, but to say, thank you, Lord. You are a gracious God who reminds me in this of your blessing and your mercy and your care for me. Let us then be sojourners and pilgrims through this age, confident that our Lord will bring to completion. In our times of doubt, let us draw near to the throne of grace, to our sympathetic priest, who is not one who is indifferent, but who is one who is leading, guiding, and has united us to him. Let us sojourn with that perspective of a shepherding God who is leading us through the wilderness as pictured with Israel. Amen. Thank you for watching or listening to our podcast. Belgrade URC is a Reformed Bible-believing church that seeks to cultivate community around our Savior. If you desire to learn more about Christianity, please join us for worship each Sunday at 10 in the morning or 6 in the evening. You can do this in person or on our live stream. You can also utilize our archive sermon series on our website, urcbelgrade.com or subscribe to our current sermon series through most common podcatchers. Until we meet again, may the Lord's blessing and peace be upon you. Thank you.